Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, the secret to saving money on tech projects. Maybe I can collaborate and take advantage of that uh, groundbreaking also to install uh, fiber conduits. So I save money. I save money in, in construction, the highest, uh, one of the highest costs in any technology project. What you see might not be what you get as far as the law is concerned. If you just go to a, a website that has the laws of your city, and you look at it, you sort of assume that it's the most current law, right? Uh, but in fact, that's seldom the case. <laughs> Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. The California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation say a potential data breach earlier this year exposed information about staff and visitors who underwent COVID-19 tests, along with mental health information of current and former inmates dating as far back as 2008. The breach was discovered in January and confirmed in June after an investigation. The monkeypox virus is overwhelming the outdated technology infrastructure of some local health jurisdictions in Washington state. The virus is less transmissible than COVID-19, but is still heaping an administrative burden on local health officials, they say. In response, the state's disease reporting system is currently being upgraded. Government offices and several public services in Fremont County, Colorado, closed as officials attempt to recover from what's only been described as a, quote, cybersecurity event. The county has lost access to their business email accounts and the county's regular website. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. The city of Coral Gables, Florida, is collaborating with other governments to improve the citizen experience of its more than 50,000 residents and millions of people transiting through city limits. Raimundo Rodolfo, the city's director of innovation and technology, is speaking about that collaboration at the upcoming Smart City Expo USA conference in Miami next month. Rodolfo tells me about that collaboration and gives a preview of what he'll say at the event. So our journey to uh, fulfill our mission of providing excellent customer service and improved quality of life for our citizens it starts with understanding the needs and priorities of our community. So that's the first thing that you need to do. So if you look at our smart city engineering frameworks and our smart city strategic management framework, it starts at the top with a vision of quality, of being a a provider of excellent services. And it goes down to a process of planning, execution, and strategic realignment. So from vision to planning to execution and to a continuous virtuous cycle of strategic realignment. So that process goes through, listen to the voice of the customer. So who is the customer in this case? It's our community, our constituents, our residents, our visitors, our businesses, the organizations that make life in Coragibos. So we, for example, we are in the center of Miami-Dade County. We have 51,000 residents. However, there's approximately, and we know because we have sensors, uh, one million vehicles that every day they traverse through Coragables. They commute through Coragables uh, from point A to point B in the county. And there are thousands of students that come to study at the University of Miami and to come to study in, in Coragables uh, Senior High School and many other schools. Not all of them live in Coragables. And there are hundreds plus thousand of visitors that come to downtown Coragables to work in Coragables, working all those multinational corporations, to work in all those trade offices and other, and 
vibrant retail and business community. So all of them are our customers, all of them, our residents, our visitors, our businesses, our workers, students, and millions of commuters. They are our customers too, because we provide infrastructure, we provide uh, services, we provide quality of life and safety that makes their life easier. And, and also a workout at a regional standpoint. So every thing that we do as a smart city in Corregos has a regional impact. That regional impact has to do with the fact that we are more than 51,000 residents. We are 51,000 residents and a large community that also uh, comes to Corregos for many different reasons or just travels through Corregos, but they are also our customers. So that large scope of mission, which is centered in people, so it's people-centric. And it starts, of course, with the needs and priorities of our residents, our taxpayers in Corregos, but also benefits everybody, benefits the entire community. So how do we listen to that voice? So in quality engineering, that's one of my other hats also, uh, it's uh, where you look at uh, industrial engineering, you look at customer service, you look at a chain of things that need to happen for you to have an operational plan that listens to the voice of the customer and continuously improve your services and your, and your organization to improve the, uh, the way how you interact, how you engage those customers, those citizens, those residents, those visitors. So how do you do it? There are many ways. So of course, there is a governance process where you have elected officials that they listen to the communities. They also bring issues to, uh, from the city's leadership, trickle down to the city employees and the city executives. And those are mandates. That's part of our budget process, where uh, we open to the public the opportunity to participate, the opportunity to prioritize projects. So the citizens, the different uh, citizen boards, and advisory boards that we have in the, in the city. Many advisory boards, they provide input from the citizens to the city. And we listen to that input, we listen to that oversight, and that helps us also to improve our strategies. Also, the city has a strategic management plan that has specific goals, and every department has alignment with those goals, and those goals respond to those needs and priorities from the citizens. For example, there was a time when our uh, one of our priorities was uh, to improve public safety. Uh, it's always a priority, but there was a high mandate uh, to lower crime, to lower traffic accidents, to improve safety in the neighborhoods. And the city spent a, a lot of their efforts and time through strategic projects to fulfill that need. That's what I was telling you, that we had great metrics of success in all those areas. And we established a community intelligence center. And we established a lot of technology and infrastructure in IoT, in CCTV, ALPR, uh, artificial intelligence for uh, predictive analytics uh, in safety in crime. Also, the automation, hyper-automation, hyper-connectivity from uh, first responders units and systems helped us also to automate that process and improve a lot uh, of issues and provide better safety to businesses and to residents. And that had a quick ROI that the citizens can touch, they can feel. So the, also they can touch the benefits of that investment in smart city infrastructure and city uh, uh, capital projects. Why? Because those have quick return, quick wins along the way. They don't have to wait too long to start realizing the benefits of those projects. 
Why? Because they start seeing the benefits, they start seeing the, the reduction in, in carbon emissions, the reductions in energy consumption, the reduction in crime, the, the, uh, the improvement in, in the safety. They start seeing that right away. That touches their life quickly. So those are quick wins. So that's part of that process. So the elicitation process, where you continuously listen to the voice of the customer and listen to the feedback from your citizens and your residents through mobile apps, through public sentiment analytics, through digital service, through old-fashioned paper service, whenever we need to reach out to customers any way we do in any media. Not everything has to be in a technological media. We also have to be uh, conscious of a special populations, special needs. So in, a, in any way, in town halls, open to the public, at city hall commission meetings where there's uh, open participation uh, through multiple citizen boards where we get that feedback. So all that feedback is input that helps us to uh, better craft our strategic plans. So it's a continuous process and it should be more than an annual cycle or a quarterly cycle. We actually do it daily because we have metrics and analytics in our smart city hub that help us also to track citizen engagement and track also a public sentiment using artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example. Those are things that you can see in our smart city hub in coragables.com slash smart city. You will see situational awareness dashboards that include public sentiment and citizen engagement as well. I want to dive in a little bit on the on the collaboration point you know you made it earlier and you were talking about um you know all the different people that sort of transit through uh coral gables and 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 sort of have a role to play whether or not they live in coral gables so between the university the county obviously you have the city of miami nearby what does that collaboration look like between you and other leaders from those cities how are you communicating how are you working together to sort of create the overall experience in the in the general area for any resident in Miami Dade County, for them, you know, when they are driving through uh, US one, when they are driving through one of the arteries, where they are coming to do business of any kind, they don't see boundaries. They don't see jurisdictional boundaries. They don't see any of the things that we also know in paper or we do as an organization and we are conscious of. But at the same time, the citizen, for them, when they are driving one of those roads, they don't care if they are in the city of Miami, they are in the city of Fargo, they are in, in South Miami. They just care that they have needs, they have priorities. They have an expectation of safety and good quality of service. So our collaboration uh, looks at that mission, the mission that uh, we need to improve the quality of life and serve our community, our larger community, not only our jurisdictional community in Corregables or city of Miami or somewhere. So we have a lot of programs with the county for mutual aid, for example, in public safety, that has always happened. So for example, we have our 911 uh, PSAP communication system is interconnected in real time also with the Miami-Dade County PSAP system. So if there's a need to fail over for any reason to the county, those things happen automatically. So there's a communication, there's an interoperability between safety systems. The University of Miami, for example, campus, which is located in Cora Gables, they use our CAD system also for police and fire for 911. And we have five cities that they come to Cora Gables when there's an activation, like, for example, like a hurricane, emergency activation. Our emergency operations center in this building, for example, serves five organizations besides Cora Gables. 
So besides the University of Miami, uh, Village of Pinecrest, uh, Village of Palmero Bay, City of South Miami, City of West Miami, uh, City of Clear, Clear Water, I think is, is, the, is the other one. So uh, we have all those differences that they come to the Emergency Operation Center of Puerto Gables to also collaborate with us during emergencies. So that's an example in safety and mutual aid, of course, and also constant communication between agencies for interoperability between cities. But at the same time, we also have collaboration with the county integrating our systems and becoming more efficient in the way how we share results. I want to give you one example. If you go to our uh, City of Corregables digital twin smart city platform, corregables.com slash smart, um, corregables.com slash digital twin, or to our uh, smart city hub, corregables.com slash smart city, you will see collaboration platforms between Miami-Dade County and between Corregables in areas like transit. We interconnected, we work together with the Department of Transportation and Public Works of the county, uh, creating an integration between the city's public transportation system for our trolley and the county's transit system. So we work together with, with, with them, uh, my team in the Innovation and Technology Department, with the uh, Technology and GIS Department of the Transportation and Public Works Department. We develop those integrations. And now when you go to Google Maps and you search for a directions as a resident, you want to go from point, point A to point B in the county, and that goes through Corregables, you have as a result, a recommendation with real-time tracking of buses for the public, uh, for the Corregables public transit system for, for the trolley, which is free. So you see that today. If you go to the Miami-Dade County's uh, transit app, and you also search for directions to go from Miami to Cora Gables, you will find recommendations that include our system. And you can see in real time where our trolley are located. We are using a, a special product, a GTFS RT product. So those, that's on the technology side. Also, we work together with other departments in the county, creating an integration that now any capital improvement project, any maintenance of traffic, MOT, so CIPs, MOTs, any right-of-way work uh, uh, that is happening in the county or in Cora Gables or in the city of Miami, because Miami signed that MOU too, or, uh, the department, or the Florida Department of Transportation, because they are also part of that MOU. So we have an MOU with four organizations, Miami, the county, city of Miami, uh, Florida Department of Transportation, and city of Cora Gables. We integrated our uh, systems that track all those things, like projects, in the right of way. For example, someone is doing a water and sewer project or Cora Gables is improving a one street with a project or we are doing an IoT installation or traffic or a smart light. All those projects in right of way work, now we know, we have awareness. We share that data in a single platform that we in integrate. If you go to a smart city hub, you will find that integration, for example, open to the public. Anybody can go there and they can see also to our employees. So look at the efficiencies that Cora Gables now knows in advance about opportunities of collaboration with the county when they are planning a, a work that is going to break ground. Maybe I can collaborate and take advantage of that uh, groundbreaking also to install uh, fiber conduits. So I save money. I save money in, in construction, the highest, uh, one of the highest costs in any technology project is the construction part, is the brick and mortar or the groundbreaking part. Or 
if the county needs to know what is the city doing also because that impacts traf uh, traffic, impacts transit. And or Cora Gables need to know if a work that city of Miami is doing in the highway next to Cora Gables is going to impact traffic too, and vice versa. So everybody has awareness because we share insight, actionable insight that comes from integration and collaboration. So those, those are some of the projects as an example. There are many other in other departments. I'm talking about the ones that we worked on directly in the innovation and technology department. Uh, we have that collaboration programs working uh, with the leadership of all those organizations. And the goal is to realize efficiencies, operational efficiencies, and actionable insight by sharing intelligence, business intelligence that will help us to uh, be more efficient in the way how we deploy uh, projects and services. So that's something that I can tell you that has been a big uh, focus of our uh, smart city programs over the years is to build those channels and methodologies of working together of interoperability with our neighbors and with the county. To sort of wrap up here, you know, you're you're participating in the Smart City Expo USA in September, uh, just over uh, a couple miles away in Miami. Um, what can we expect from you? What are you planning to bring to the conference? What are you hoping to get out of it? Well, we go to those events with a broad expectation of doing multiple things. So basically, we want to share what we're doing. We want to learn from others. That's very important, the educational part. And we want to establish more strategic partnerships with those organizations that will help us to continue delivering value. But we want to move from partnership to active collaboration and bringing value to the community. So we want that to be actionable. Every time we participate in any kind of event or collaboration, there has to be some value at the end that is going to benefit our residents, our citizens. What comes out of those events uh, typically that help us realize that value, that continuous value, in that virtuous cycle of sharing, learning, partnering, collaborating, and building collective value and repeat, because it is a continuum. So what happens after those things? Usually we learn a lot about case studies. We learn what worked, what did not work in other places. They learn from our mistakes and from our lessons learned. And because we share, we are open and transparent and we do it. This is why you can go to our digital library I'm going to share with the public is coragables.com slash itdocs, itdocs, coragables.com slash itdocs. You will see everything pretty much that we do, all our strategic plans, all our IT bullets, uh, um, sorry, bulletins with all the events and projects and things that we learn and things that we learn from others that we apply here in Coragables and things that we share that others also try to apply in their organization. So, Basically, we are transparent in the way how we work in all those innovations and projects, how we learn from others. And what comes out of these events is that I'm going to go there. I'm going to share a little bit of what we do. I'm going to be on a session uh, with, I think, if I remember correctly, with the county, with my, with my colleagues in the county. And we're going to share stories, how we collaborate, what I share with you, how we collaborate with the county and how that brings value to the community. But also I'm gonna share how we are implementing these new technologies, how we are engineering and building uh, homegrown applications like the digital twin, like the smart city hub, like these IoT networks of smart lights and smart poles and sensors, how we use all that data constantly in real time in our community intelligence center. So I'm gonna share case studies very pragmatically. So very, so I am my my background, I can tell you, is an engineer from the pro from, from the 
uh, private sector, most of the things that I do are very actionable and very pragmatic, and they have a goal to show you quickly what we do, and that way we can see how we can learn from what you're doing and how we can collaborate. So it's going to be very actionable. So that's pretty much what we're trying to do there. And we are going to try to realize some value out of that. And I'm sure that I will because there will be a lot of experts in that conference from, from the world. I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to build a lot of friendships and partnerships and something good is going to come out out of that uh, collaboration the same way how it came out from previous collaborations. And we are doing a lot of projects with universities and with the, with the industry and with other government agencies. Raimundo Rodolfo, Director of Innovation and Technology at the City of Coral Gables, Florida. You can read more about collaboration at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also catch Raimundo and many others at the Smart City Expo USA event in Miami, Florida on September 14th and 15th. You'll find registration links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of Statescoop's Priorities podcast. Next week on the show, Grace Simrall. Louisville, Kentucky's Chief of Civic Innovation and Technology, talks about new momentum behind the open data movement. You can subscribe to the podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The Institute of Museum and Library Sciences is awarding more than $5 million to strengthen digital inclusion and library services for tribal governments. The grants will go to several tribal governments, as well as to Native Hawaiians, and are the latest in the Institute's efforts to extend services to tribal communities. The Open Law Library received one of the Institute's grants back in 2020 and has embarked on a widespread project to digitize and open access to tribal laws in the public domain. David Grison, the Open Law Library CEO and founding director, tells Statescoop's Colin Wood about the project. So Open Law Library is a 501c3, and our mission is to help governments publish their laws directly to the public. Um, we've been accomplishing that by building the Open Law Platform which is a uh, series of, of software tools that help with various stages of the drafting, uh, codifying, publishing, and preservation and authentication of digital laws. So we've, we started in 2016 uh, with the District of Columbia, and we started, we started publishing their, their laws in 2018. Um, on online, and they're a, a fairly substantial jurisdiction from a, a legal standpoint. I think they pass like 600 plus uh, code changing laws every year, and they're they're pretty complicated because they uh, combine a lot of federal, state, and local legal styles. And since then, we've been expanding and refining the platform um, in. Right after you and I last talked uh, in in 2020, we received a national leadership grant uh, from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and we've been using that to create a tribal law uh, pilot project, a digital digital tribal law pilot project. Um, and so that's been that's been fascinating working working on on that side of the law that, that most people don't don't get to experience it's been uh yeah well why okay so just to back up a little bit you you said the the purpose of your organization is to help governments publish their laws so why is that necessary why can't they do it themselves why how how is that usually done 
Yeah, so the process of codifying is is actually pretty complicated. You can you can think of codification as first taking all the laws that have ever been passed and organizing them by subject. And so that right there is is a, a significant task. And then once they're all organized by subject, then you have to take all of the amendments to those laws and apply those. So if it says we repeal section three of a particular law, then you have to go in and actually remove section three. Or if it says change the word commission to committee in throughout chapter two, then you have to go in and change, make that change in every, in every place that it exists in chapter two. And this is a, a labor intensive, and those are just simple amendments, right? They, they can get arbitrary, arbitrarily complex, like making an amendment to an amendment, right? So you, re, you repeal a section and then someone repeals the repeal of that section. Hmm. Or they change the date on which that section is repealed to sometime in the future, right? So hmm. effectively, it's, it's been unrepealed. Hmm. And yeah, this, the, the, these can get extremely complex and it's it's very difficult to do manually especially when you have large volumes of laws and so over the last hundred years or so most jurisdictions have transitioned to using uh third-party commercial publishers and those publishers made by and large make their money by uh charging the municipality a certain amount of money to do publication and then they'll usually and then they would publish they would actually print out the copies of the books and make sure that all the law firms in the city got them uh, who subscribed for the updates and there was a significant amount of work actually distributing the laws to all the all the attorneys and, and legal professionals who needed it but now that we have digital publishing um that that actual distribution is no longer really necessary um, oh, and they would charge everybody. They would charge individuals for access to the laws. So they would charge to to publish. I mean, they would charge the law firm to send them the updates three times a year or whatever. Right. Um, but now, the marginal cost of of displaying the law to another person is essentially zero. But it's still the same. Uh, still, there's still the same uh, business business model where. Um, the publisher charges the government and they charge people for access um and it's it's a freemium model if you're if you're familiar with that term mm -hmm. basically um people do have a, a fourth amendment due process right to view the law and so most of these publishers have a a website that has restricted um functionality or is very slow or is uh doesn't have as good of search um, and then, or it doesn't allow you to search across multiple jurisdictions, right? So you couldn't search both the county and the city that you live in. Uh, you'd have to go and search each individually unless you pay money. Right. So this is the this is the freemium model, and most of them have terms of service that prohibit anybody from using the code that they get off of the website for anything except personal personal use, right? It's they prohibit educational use, commercial uh, commercial use, nonprofit use, public use. Um, they're, they're pretty explicit about excluding anything except personal use. And so that effectively means that unless you're willing to buy a paper copy, and many jurisdictions don't even print paper copies anymore, all the only way that you can view the, the code is through that freemium website or paying to get a slightly better 
better website version. And so you can't actually print out the laws and, and use them to in your construction firm, right? I mean, probably nobody's going to actually go after you, but technically that's a commercial use of the of the code, right? And yeah. that would technically be violating their terms of service. It's 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 very it's all very counterintuitive for a number of reasons. I I think, you know, one thing that I think most people know is that ignorance of the law is not a defense against breaking it. And yet uh, it seems there are barriers oftentimes to even even for the, you know, the best intention person to understand what the law is. There's there's barriers. So it, if I if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like a big part of your mission has to do with access. That's exactly correct. That is the entirety of our of our mission. <laughs> oh, good. And and the first the first step of that is giving people actual access to the useful access to the laws themselves, and then uh, there's ever more comprehensive versions of access, as you can imagine. Um, like being able to understand the law with um, less than a college education or a mm. post-secondary, <laughs> uh, post-college education, mm-hmm. um, and those are those are issues that can't be addressed by a publishing company. But there are things that we're we're still very interested in and partner with people on in other in other contexts. Right. Is that something you've you've started on, or just something you're interested in doing? Um. So we we've done some consulting with uh with the various governments as they've been trying to figure out how to how to how to restructure their laws or how to go about embarking on on uh, on simplification and so we haven't we have not personally done any of that work but we've we've assisted i guess three governments at this point with mm. with thinking through the the infrastructure that they need and the and the processes that they need Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that can be as important as, as access. I mean, if you, if it, if it reads to someone like it's written in another language, which it sort of is, then it's, it's as good as unavailable to that person. Yep. Yeah. It's sort of like the lever, levels of the pyramid, right? You have mm-hmm. to have it available and accessible to people and usable. <laughs> right. And then, and even if you make them really easy to understand, if it's not available and accessible, then it's useless, right? And so right. we're just sort of working our way up that pyramid from the from the bottom. Right. All right. Um, so you mentioned working with a, a tribe. Could you talk about that a little bit? What that process has been like? Why Why is it interesting? And um, how is it different from uh, you know working with DC, for example? Sure. So it's been the working with tribes has been very interesting because very few tribes have ever used commercial publishers before. Um, there, there are very few municipalities uh, and local governments that uh, still attempt to self-publish just because of the complexity. It's, it's usually the, the smallest governments you usually see doing it are, are state and obviously the federal government self, self-codifies and publishes. Um, but most tribes, even, even if they only have one or two attorneys, are, are doing that self, self-codification and publishing. And one of the big reasons for that is uh, data sovereignty, right? Um, it is, in the traditional publishing model, you are giving your data to the publisher 
and the publisher is publishing on their website and then they are granting you access to that data <laughs> right and a try would be like why would why would i ever do that hmm. it's it's still not entirely clear to me why local governments are willing to make that deal but uh tribes are, are definitely uh, very concerned about that sort of thing. Mm. And that's why I think less than 10% of tribes actually use commercial publishers today. Mm. And so we, we had built our system. DC spent many decades trying to get home rule and they only got home rule in the seventies. And so they are, uh, the self-determination aspect of, 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 of governance is extremely important to the district as a whole. And so we built data sovereignty into the, into the fundamentals of the, of the platform, into the foundation of the platform, uh, because the law that is created by a government is almost the purest expression of self-determination, uh, especially in a democracy. Um, and so in our system, a government controls the database, the official database of laws, and they have full um, authenticatable versions of everything on their servers. Uh, we actually don't store anything on our servers. Hmm. Um, and what they do is they give us programmatic access to their servers, to the databases that are on servers they control, and we make changes on their behalf. And every change that we make has a full audit trail of exactly who made it, why it was made, and and the the date and time. And so it sort of gives you the best of both worlds, right? You don't have to, it, it's the convenience of a third-party publisher, but you maintain full data sovereignty. Hmm. Um, you control, you control everything. And so that has that has turned out to be uh appreciated by by tribal governments so we started out with two tribes uh the pueblo de san Ildefonso in new mexico and the stockbridge muncie community in wisconsin and since then um and that was that was through the imls program uh, and then since then we've added the lakota ray tribe in wisconsin and we're now working with uh a, a tribe we're, we're currently uh, implementing the law library for the, a tribe in uh, North Dakota. And mm. we're, we're getting ready to start our, our actually third in, in Wisconsin, which is pretty exciting. The other half of the IMLS grants, and it's specifically, IMLS is specifically about libraries, was this idea that not only do you have data sovereignty for the tribes, but libraries have lost an enormous amount of of control over their own collections right the most that they can do in in the current publishing environment is get a a license to some siloed set of data on someone else's server right a, a, a commercial data broker right and so they have to get a bunch of these licenses which are very expensive and if they ever stop paying they lose access to every every single law that's on that on mm. that service right mm. Mm. um and what we're trying to do is is flip that back to roll back the clock <laughs> to when libraries were actually able to uh, maintain their own collections on premises and so 
when a tribe or any government that publishes on the platform publishes an update, uh, the library can either fully automatically or receive a notification in order to do a manual check. Um, they get, they pull down the update, they authenticate it via uh, cryptography that we developed with the NYU Secure Systems Lab. And then they can incorporate that data into their existing collections. Hmm. And so as part of the IMLS grant, um, we worked with the National Indian Law Library, um, which is uh, run by NARF, the Native American Rights Fund uh, or foundation. I don't, I don't recall which. Hmm. Um, and we set up this proof of this proof of concept so that whenever the the law is published by a tribe that is that it's okay with uh, with other people using uh, incorporating their data into collections, then the library automatically downloads it, authenticates it, and then because their IT process procedures require a human in the loop, they have to click a button before it then automatically updates their their uh, the nil nil library database mm. with all of the updates to the codes and traditionally it it's taken nil enormous enormous amounts of resources to try and track down changes to codes and changes to laws uh that that tribes have promulgated and this way you're able to search across all of the tribes that you and you know that it's updated through nil's website right right I think this might be a good point to kind of run through uh, some of the features of your platform. And you've you've already done this in passing. But uh, when we've talked in the past, I found it interesting to hear about the different things that that it does, because it's it illustrates how complex keeping track of all this can be and um, just sort of the challenges inherent in your project. Yeah, so we've we spent a lot of time thinking through a lot of complexities so that our partners don't have to. <laughs> um, so the first step is the drafting stage, and we have a Microsoft Word plugin called Open Law Draft that sits right right in the sidebar within Microsoft Word and gives you full access to your existing law library and allows you to pull in chunks of language from your code or from other laws in order to make amendments to those those sections of text and then it's like a, a spell check on steroids the legislative drafting manual for that jurisdiction we actually program that legislative drafting manual into the drafting tool so that it warns you if you do something in the law that that conflicts with your drafting manual and just like a spell check you can always ignore those right from from our standpoint it's extremely important that um I mean, professionals are using the platform and we're not going to tell professionals how to do their job. We're just going to warn them about the things that they want to be warned about. Just like spell checker, you could ignore. If you know that that word is spelled correctly, it's just not in the database, you can ignore that warning, right? And so that allows governments to publish uh, structurally correct and stylistically correct laws much faster uh, with that integration with the law library. And because those laws are well-structured and, and match the style, it becomes much easier at the codification stage because a lot of the things that slow down codification are when you find drafting errors and you have to go back to the, to the 
government and ask, what, what was your intent here? What should we do with this? If we, if we do exactly what it says here, it's going to, it's going to create gibberish. Um, and then there's, a back, there's sometimes a back and forth. And in the worst case scenario, you actually have to go back and pass an amendment to that law, right? And that can take a very long time. Uh, so we, we catch a lot of those very common drafting errors before they ever become law. Uh, and that allows us to publish, codify and publish much, much faster. Uh, we're talking days instead of weeks or months. At the publishing level, um, as we've been talking about, access is very important to us and it's access for everybody. And so our the websites that we build for our partners are fully ADA compliant. They're accessible by people with disabilities. Uh, they are designed to work with uh, low to mid-range phones that only have 3G network connection. And by doing that, many, many low income individuals only have access to the internet via their phone or at the library. And so it's important to us that low income individuals be able to use their, their primary method of accessing the internet, their phone, to be able to browse their own laws. Hmm. So from an accessibility standpoint, that is, that's an important aspect of, of what we do. And then we also work to make the navigation and um, and research of and legal research much easier, and for that we've actually uh, completely reinvented how how cod when codification happens. Traditionally, you codify a couple of times a year, and even if you have historical versions available, it's what was codified on on this date last year and that other date last year. There might be three or four of those uh, if you're lucky, or there might only be one. And if you want to know what the law was on any other date, you have to do your own mini codification, right? Apply any amendments. Um, with our system, we actually apply the all amendments on every single day and build out a, a temporally accurate down to the day view of what the law looked like on any single day. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to our system and you look at April 15th of 2020, then you're going to see exactly what the law was on April 15th, 2020. It's not what the law looked like as codified on January 1, 2020, and now you have to figure out from there. No, it's exactly what the law looked like on April 15th, 2020. Mm -hmm. And that, that reduces the complexity of legal research that many lay people don't even know is a complexity, right? If you just go to a, a website that has the laws of your city and you look at it, you sort of assume that it's the most current law, right? Uh, but in fact, that's seldom the case. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's lawyers know that they need to look at all the enacted but not yet codified laws, but lay people don't. Mm -hmm. So by by working to eliminate those sources of legal research error, we make it possible for uh, lay people to have a better understanding of their laws. Right. Within through the lens of your accessibility mission, do you have any success stories or things that you like to point to to uh, encourage yourself to keep you going? Yeah. So some of the really my some of my favorite um, 
work is when we're helping a government publish its laws online for the very first time. Because when that's happening, there's no doubt that there's an enormous improvement in accessibility for the for the public in those jurisdictions. Um, but then you're also talking about large jurisdictions where where you make significant improvements, uh, significant incremental improvements, and those can dramatically change, uh, dramatically improve access to justice and those sorts of things. And so, for instance, with the District of Columbia. Um, the freemium website provided by their by their previous publisher um, didn't really work on phones. It was extremely slow, like two, three, four seconds every time you clicked and you had to make many, many clicks to find whatever you were looking for. Mm. Um, and when, when we created the new uh, code.dccouncil.us website uh, for, for the district, uh, we heard back from legal aid organizations that would meet their client for the first time 10 minutes before uh the before the court case uh in the in the lobby of these big uh classical buildings with really thick stone walls and they'd have terrible cell phone connections and suddenly they were able to despite the bad internet connection and only be on their phone they could actually look at the code if they needed to remember something. Before that, they had to carry thick binders and hope that what they were going to be uh, presenting was going to be in their binder, right? <laughs> and so that dramatically improved the the quality of, of justice that um, whole classes of people were able to receive through, uh, through legal aid organizations. David Grayson, CEO of the Open Law Library. You can read more about digital inclusion and open source projects at statesgroup.com and in links in today's show notes. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.